trying to disguise yourself as a worker bee. That's you trying to blend in with hive. But you're not a worker bee. You're a renegade killer bee. Killer bee. Killer bee. Viceberg Slim. I will chop your heads off! Welcome to In Broad Daylight, a solo podcast with your host, Adam Todd Brown. Hey everybody, welcome to In Broad Daylight, a solo politics and news podcast. Sometimes with jokes, but not yet. Not this early in the podcast. Don't even talk to me before I've had my coffee. This will probably be a lot shorter than the last episode, but only because I have more of a vested interest in the prohibition of flavored jewel pods than I do in a crisis that could lead to a third world war. I mean, we're all going to die sometime. That is inevitable. But I'll be goddamned if the forces of oppression and tyranny will keep me from inhaling banana dragonberry flavored vapor out of a nicotine robot. Not on my watch, not in my America. Anyway, on this week's episode, we're talking about something you've probably seen a lot in the news, but still know very little about. The massive protests in Hong Kong. You know people are taken to the streets in huge numbers in Hong Kong. You know that much. You've seen it on the news. You know it's been happening for what feels like months. And you're not imagining that part. These protests have indeed been carrying on for months. But mostly on weekends. Not to brag, but Hong Kong's doing all right financially these days. People have jobs to get to. And even if you're not an international politics stan or whatever the kids are calling it these days, chances are you have at least some understanding that protesting against the Chinese government is a dangerous proposition. If not, Google it now before we start buying internet surveillance technology from those monsters and searches for Tiananmen Square stop working in the United States. And hey, speaking of that, Despite a smattering of tear gas here and there, maybe you've also noticed that, so far, the Chinese government has been fairly tolerant of these protests, as evidenced by the fact that, unlike the aforementioned incident at Tiananmen Square, we haven't replaced the word protest with massacre when describing it yet. And it's not like we're dealing with a kinder, gentler China these days. They've got like a million Muslims in camps right now, and their president just decided he gets to keep that job for life. Decisions like that don't usually happen on good terms. So make no mistake, if given a choice, the Chinese government would love nothing more than to drive over every protester in Hong Kong with a tank post-haste. But it's not that easy. And to understand why, you have to go back in time. All the way back to 1839, a period that some historians refer to affectionately as the beginning of modern Chinese history. It was a very different world back then. China was embroiled in a trade war with its biggest trading partner, and an opiate epidemic was raging out of control. Can you even imagine living under such chaos? 
The trade partner in question back then was Europe, where demand for Chinese goods like silk, porcelain, and tea led to a trade imbalance between the Qing dynasty in China and Great Britain. To counter this, the British East India Company started growing opium in Bengal, present-day Bangladesh, and smuggling it into China illegally. And this did successfully reverse that trade deficit, but it also drained the Chinese economy of money and saddled them with a huge population of drug addicts. Also not great for the economy. So they had some complaints, and they put those complaints in a letter and sent that letter to the queen, to which she replied, not at all, in any way, shape, or form. Total radio silence more than half a century before radios were even invented. So China's next move was to ask people running opium businesses to give those businesses up in exchange for tea. And then they could use that tea to start tea businesses. But if you've ever tried opium, you know this is really not a choice at all. It is just better than tea in every way, including, I'm assuming, far more profitable. So that didn't work. So then they tried force. They ordered a blockade of merchant ships and seized whatever opium they could find. And they found a little. 2.6 million pounds, in fact. And now we've all watched enough HBO to know what happens when you rob a drug dealer. They start shooting. And sure enough, the British government sent their massive military to rain hellfire down upon China in a conflict that has come to be known as the First Opium War. That's right. Shit happened twice. After that first one, China was forced to sign the Treaty of Nanking, which, among other things, ceded control of the island of Hong Kong to the British. And after a few more decades of unpleasantries, the British signed a 99-year lease for a whole bunch of Chinese territories, including Hong Kong. The thing about leases, though, is that they do expire. So in 1997, despite murdering Princess Diana to prevent it, the Brits transferred control of Hong Kong back to China. Now, by 1997, even countries that technically were China knew they didn't want to be under the thumb of the Chinese government. So China and Hong Kong coexist under this fragile agreement known as one country, two systems. It's exactly what it sounds like. Hong Kong is part of China, but they have their own system of government that leans a little more democratic than their mainland brethren. China has a similar agreement with Taiwan. That's why there was all that uproar right after Trump took office and he went on Twitter and said he had a very productive call with the president of Taiwan. As far as U.S.-China relations go, we don't recognize a president of Taiwan. We're allowed to be friends with Hong Kong and Taiwan both. We consider them both allies. We do some trading with them both, as do several other countries. But we don't, in that particular conflict, we sort of side with China purely for diplomatic reasons and don't so much recognize, at least in the case of Taiwan, that government in an official way. And Hong Kong and Taiwan both robust economies, but 
Hong Kong stands out a bit in this regard. It boasts the highest concentration of ultra high net worth individuals of any city in the world. So Hong Kong doesn't just have friends with money. They are also the friends with money. In case you're wondering why China hasn't just squashed these protests with their trademark brutality and violence, there's one answer. The response to that wouldn't just come from Hong Kong. Like, half the fucking world would intervene. But why are people in Hong Kong protesting right now? This current wave of protests started when the Hong Kong government announced the impending passage of something called the Fugitive Offenders Amendment Bill. Had it been enacted, it would allow local authorities to detain and extradite criminal fugitives to places Hong Kong doesn't have extradition agreements with, like mainland China, for example. Unsurprisingly, people were concerned that an agreement that allows people in Hong Kong to be extradited to China would basically just put everyone in Hong Kong, including people who visit there, under the jurisdiction of China. Which, at that point, why be an autonomous region with civil liberties at all if China can just request that your local government round you up and ship you to the mainland so you can be dealt with in that special way they deal with dissidents and criminals, which is to... Sell them for medical cadavers. And so these protests started in March, but picked up steam and turned into a regularly occurring thing in June. Not long after that, Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, apologized for introducing the bill, but she also refused to withdraw it. And for some reason, this bold and generous gesture did not appease anyone. In fact, it prompted the protesters to add a few more items to their list of demands. In addition to withdrawing the bill entirely, they now wanted the release of protesters who'd been arrested, a retraction of the official characterization of the protests as riots, Carrie Lam's resignation, and universal suffrage of the chief executive. I trust none of that requires any further explanation. Let's move on. Fine. I trust most of it requires no further explanation. But what's that universal suffrage stuff all about? Very glad you asked. You see, to really get to the root of what's happening in Hong Kong right now, you have to go back a few years, specifically to another long, drawn-out protest that happened in 2014. That year, the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress, which is the legislative arm of the government of mainland China. They proposed a reform to the electoral process that would allow them to pre-screen candidates for the 2017 Hong Kong chief executive election. In other words, vote for any candidate you want, provided your mainland overlords deem them fit for office. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, freedom isn't free, but that is not what it's supposed to mean. So, in response to this proposal, people took to the streets. Lots of people. Including, for the first time in history, lots of young people. Up to that point, young people in Hong Kong were a mostly apolitical bunch. The 2014 protests are widely credited 
with igniting this sense of social activism and awareness of their civil liberties and human rights in young people all over Hong Kong. And these protests also tore that country apart. On the one side, you had a huge group of mostly young people who were realizing for the first time ever that human rights are a thing they can and should be fighting for. And on the other side, you had a bunch of old people who thought there were better ways to protest than taken to the streets. Sounds familiar, huh? Anyway, despite carrying on for two months, those protests didn't accomplish much. The government made no concessions at all. They just sort of waited it out until everyone quit complaining. I mean, well, there was also lots of tear gas, lots of violence, lots of arrests. Protesters were attacked by police, sometimes attacked by triad gang members who were sent in by the Chinese government to deal with protesters. Uh, Some were arrested and remain in custody to this day. So as a result, the tension that prompted the 2014 protests has just been simmering this entire time. And the extradition bill is just that extra heat that's making it boil at this moment. That's why, despite the extradition bill having been officially rescinded on September 4th, the protests haven't stopped. It's about all the same grievances people had in 2014, but now there are significantly more people. At various points throughout these protests, there have been as many as a million people in the streets, and there are no signs pointing to them giving up anytime soon. Unsurprisingly, the Chinese aren't taking this well at all. As is customary, they've started accusing the United States of covertly intervening on behalf of the protesters, which, come on, that's probably only half true at best. I don't doubt for one second that we're involved in some way, but blaming it all on us is just China trying to shield themselves from blame for being a brutal regime that no one wants to live under. It's like if R. Kelly blamed the Lifetime Network for his current legal troubles. Yeah, it's true in a sense, but also, if you weren't having sex with tweens, there'd be no documentary in the first place. So while China sees the fact that protesters have taken to carrying around American flags and appealing to Trump for help as proof of U.S. involvement, I see it more as proof that desperate times call for desperate measures. You don't borrow money from a loan shark until it's literally the last option you have left. That said, China's accusations are a little more severe this time around. Case in point, a spokesman for China's foreign ministry recently accused the group of seven nations. I've, I Did everyone pick up on the pause there? Because it's not the group of seven nations. And you're like, what the fucking nations? There is actually a group of seven nations that cleverly refers to themselves as the group of seven. And they are nations. And those nations are Britain, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and the United States. So all the white countries and Japan. And China's foreign ministry accused the group of seven nations of harboring ulterior motives after the group issued a statement asking both sides in the Hong Kong conflict to not resort to violence. They then took it a step further by declaring that the 1984 agreement between China and Britain 
that made Hong Kong an autonomous region is now null and void. And that is a huge deal for everyone in the entire world, but especially here in the United States. That agreement dictates how we deal with Hong Kong and China. And we review that relationship every year, like in an official way. If something changes, who we side with and to what degree we intervene can and probably will change. One of the things protesters have been calling for is for Congress to pass the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. That's a bill that was introduced in the Senate back in June that calls for allowing individuals arrested for participating in protests in Hong Kong to obtain visas to work or study in the United States. For the record, Hong Kong police announced that they've arrested nearly 1,400 people between the ages of 12 and 76 since the protests started. Imagine arresting a 12-year-old or a 76-year-old. It's got to make a person feel like a real hero. The bill also calls for compiling a list of individuals responsible for abducting and torturing protesters and then barring those individuals from entering the United States. So sanctions. A lot of times our earliest sanctions rounds, or whatever the fuck we call them, are targeted at high-level individuals in that government. And then they start trickling down. I mean, they immediately start destroying poor people. But how explicit we are about their intent to destroy poor people varies as you get further and further into the conflict. Anyway, whether Trump will put any of that into action after the bill passes is anyone's guess. But if he does, it will amount to the United States very definitively siding with Hong Kong in a dispute with mainland China. What it could escalate into from there is anyone's guess. But whatever it is, it probably won't be ideal. Again, Hong Kong is a pretty big economy with a lot of trade partners and a lot of allies and a lot of people who probably wouldn't mind if they were separate from China, including people who live in Hong Kong. So an extradition bill pushed by the Hong Kong government probably feels like a distant threat, but you never know. That said, there are some signs that things might get better before it comes to that. Carrie Lam announced that starting next week, her administration would hold open meetings with the public to discuss whatever they have on their mind, which, if I'm being honest, seems to be quite a lot. She even offered to throw another coal onto the fire and bring Hong Kong's brutal housing and land shortage crisis into the discussion. Just another reminder that townhouses win hearts and minds. So I guess you can count that as progress. However, there's a date that you should put in your calendar, October 1st. That's the day the Chinese government will celebrate the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China with a huge military parade through the streets of Beijing. Now, the Chinese have denied that this impending celebration has any bearing on the protests in Hong Kong at all. But there are a lot of rumors to that effect. China takes this shit really seriously. And when I say this shit, I mean important dates and big public celebrations. 
They will not take being embarrassed or overshadowed on their new for life president's first big public day. Xi Jinping needs this. He's embroiled in a trade war that he isn't necessarily winning, and he's made a lot of promises to the people that chaos in Hong Kong will make a lot harder to fulfill. He needs this October 1st celebration to be a good look. And because of that, there are two lines of thinking in terms of how this could go. One says that all of this relative calm and lack of brute force on the part of China all comes down to them not wanting to attract more unwanted attention before that parade happens. But also that as soon as it does happen, all bets are off and Hong Kong will be dealt with. Then there's another side that thinks China has no intention of letting these protests carry on long enough to potentially overshadow that parade and that a crackdown sometime between now and October 1st is inevitable. Who's right or if either side is right obviously remains to be seen. But as I record this, October 1st is exactly two weeks away. Far be it from me to scare anyone, but a massive military conflict involving several nations could follow shortly thereafter. But hey, don't let it ruin your Halloween or anything. Anyway, now you know all about what's happening in Hong Kong. Congratulations. Take this information to work with you and impress everybody you know. And like I promised, that didn't take long at all. I bet once I edit out all the awkward pauses and me stumbling over words, this is going to be like four minutes. If you want to read more about all this, check out unpops.com for links to all of the articles I read while researching this. There are entirely too many to list them all here. And it's not like you're going to write that shit down, you know? All right, let's get out of here. Goodbye, everybody. I love you. (laughs) 